0: Welcome to the Well Setting Podcast. This is episode 147. It's October 25th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at Investablewealth.com. Well, in today's episode, I want to discuss the banking and financial sector. As you've heard me say in previous uh, recent episodes here, I've been waiting to see the reports come in on those so I could get a better feel for which direction I think the stock market is headed. We're going to talk about that. We are going to briefly talk about the overall status of the economy and why I, I remain pessimistic. But really what this episode is going to drill down on is it's going to focus on what I consider the three most important sectors of the economy. One of those happens to be the financial or banking institutions. And so that's why I've waited to uh, to talk about and wrap it up into this episode. So let's start out today's episode by just talking about what's generally happening with the stock market. I've received so, uh, many questions from listeners saying, why haven't I posted my new positions or why haven't I commented over at investablewealth.com in the blog as to you know, what I'm buying as I'm moving into this market rally. Well, I haven't posted anything because I have not purchased anything. I, I remain skeptical at this point and I'd refer you back to the, the blog post that I did at investablewealth.com uh, entitled Swing Trading in One Chart. I've talked about this numerous times, that's where I lay out the argument that you can use the 100-day moving average on the S&P 500 as an early warning system, an early warning device that can protect you from a catastrophic loss. Now if you look at that blog post, you'll see that I have a chart that covers, I don't know, 20 years or so, 15 years. Of the S&P 500, I plot out the 20-week moving average, which... For our purposes today, we'll we'll call that similar or the same thing as a 100-day moving average. And you can see that if you only owned the S&P 500 at times when it was above its 100-day moving average, then by definition, you would have avoided all the catastrophic losses, right? You would have not lost half or more of your money in the dot-com bubble. You would have not lost you know, half of your money in the housing bubble in 2008. And so the reason this is so important and that I'm pointing this out is that back over this summer, we broke the 100-day moving average on the S&P 500. While I'm not worried about an overall uh, economic collapse or meltdown, I am concerned about a 20% or more correction in this market because we are in the third longest bull market in history. As I've explained before, the rationale that propelled those other two largest bull markets in history, that's not what we're in now. We're in an era that's really been driven and been funded by quantitative easing and central bank intervention. And what the central bankers give, the central bankers can take away. And so while I'm not concerned about a a total economic meltdown, I am concerned about a major correction. When we broke that 100-day moving average, I became very much concerned. And with the exception of, uh, you know, my overweighted investment in the U.S. dollar and my small 5 to 10% investment in Walmart. For the most part, I'm out of the market, have been out of the market for quite some time. And so again, relying on the wisdom of that 100-day moving average, I've chosen to follow that very strict regimen through this correction. Now, this isn't something I would necessarily do in every correction, but in the one that we're in right now, I've chosen to be overly cautious. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in today's episode and and, and go on with future episodes. But the point I'm making here is that our S&P 500 has not crossed above that 100-day moving average until this past Thursday. That was October 22nd. And so from earlier this summer until just October 22nd, because of my concern and my pessimism, I would have not gotten back into the market. Now, I do think we had a very good follow-through day. I think we had some very good technical action on the 23rd and the uh, 22nd uh, of October this past Thursday and Friday this week that in more normal conditions would have prompted me to jump into the market. However, the reason I'm holding back is because of what I see as as wide and large-scale weakness in not only the global economy, but specifically even here in the U.S. economy where we're doing very well or at least doing very well on the surface of things. But I see very shallow leadership in the stock market. The big strength we've really seen this year has been in some technical stocks. They're commonly referred to as the fangs: Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, those were the big ones, and that was really where you saw the concentration of wealth being built. If you looked at the overall NASDAQ, There were many stocks that were performing very poorly, but because those five or six stocks are such large weighted capitalization of the index, and because they'd performed so well, that made the overall market or the index look better than what was really happening in the overall economy. So technologies have performed well. Biotech stocks have performed extremely well for the past couple years. And then earlier this year, the financial stocks uh, looked like they were rebounding and, and starting to perform better. So you had financials, biotech, and technology really leading the market this year. And even with that, we've seen the market, the market trading in a very tight range, never going much upper or or below 2100, two or 3%. Either way, you know, you had 2100 in the S&P 500, maybe dip down to 2000, then back up to 2100 back and forth, trading in that very tight range all year long until this summer when things started to break down. Now that they've broken down, you do see that overall weakness permeating throughout the economy. The biotechs have have collapsed. You have no more leadership or strength there. The financials, um, although they collapsed, they did recover. They made about maybe 50% of that back up, but they're still pretty much flat for the year. And that really only leaves you with technology and within that leadership of the technology that those fang stocks are getting even smaller because now Apple has dropped out of that leadership now Apple's reporting this upcoming week we'll see what their earnings say about their performance of their stock maybe Apple will jump back into the leadership but right now leadership in the technology stocks is very weak you're really only seeing strength in about three major stocks that's Google Facebook and Amazon now, Microsoft has done well this past week, but Microsoft has been, you know, such a dinosaur for so long that I'm reserving judgment as, as a, you know, really considering that in a leadership role. But you look at the other stocks, you know, Apple's out, Netflix is out, Tesla has performed lousy. Um, some of the new stocks that are really consumer products, but some people consider them technology like GoPro, where well, that's fallen apart. The social media stocks other than Facebook have pretty much fallen apart. Uh, Twitter, Groupon, Chinese internet and Chinese social media stocks like Alibaba and Baidu, all those things, they've fallen apart. So leadership is just weak and shallow in this market. That's a major concern to me. The other thing that's a major concern to me, and we won't dwell on it in this episode because I think we'll come back uh, here real shortly in another episode or two and and dedicate uh, an entire show to it, but that's that the risk of a commodity default, either by countries or by major companies and corporations, is, is still very much a threat to the overall banking institution, the global economy. And it could be something that would throw us into currency crisis as well as a, a general liquidity crisis. And when I talk about commodity defaults, I'm talking about energy companies like shale oil producers or even uh, traditional oil producers in weak, you know, moderately developed economies like Nigeria or even more stable economies that in recent years have just been crushed with debt and government spending like Venezuela uh, or even a major economy like Brazil. We've seen their oil production decline because of the 50% fall in oil prices. And that's just been devastating to the economy. Of Brazil, all the exporting countries, whether they're exporting raw materials or, or like a New Zealand that exports a lot of dairy products or agricultural products, those economies have been prospering in recent years, and particularly when the U.S. was having problems coming out of the financial crisis in 2008. Many of those economies were prospering because we were continuing to see double digit growth out of, out of China in particular and out of Asia in general. Well, that growth has slowed. It's declined. The official rate that came out of China last week was a growth rate of, I believe it was 6.9%, which beat estimates because they were calling on 6.8%. And, you know, if you believe that official number, well, you know, there's some swampland in Florida you might want to invest in as well. The real growth coming out of China right now is probably something closer to 5, 5.5%. Many credible economists are saying it's really 4.5% that there is a major recession and slowdown occurring in China, and that lack of growth in China as well as overall lack of global growth is depressing these uh, economies that rely on commodity and energy exports. They're all funded with exorbitant amounts of debt If those start to default, that will be the major black swan event that will create the catastrophic loss that I'm worried about and why I've been avoiding the stock market as long as the S&P 500 was trading below its 100-day moving average. Now, again, I want to stress here, I'm not being alarmist. I'm not worried about a total economic meltdown. I'm just saying that if we do start to see those defaults occur and it's hard for me to believe that we're not going to see more than what has uh you know the shoes that have dropped so far with things like Chesapeake oil on the energy side or com- or a company like uh Glencore on the um mining and and you know zinc and copper side of the equation. That's what's really stabled the markets, and over the past three weeks, that's why you saw oil start to rise, gold was moving up, as well as some other commodities, primarily because Glencore was cutting back production. We've seen a small number of bankruptcies and things in in these smaller energy and commodity companies, but again, this is just my opinion, this is from the facts that I'm reading we haven't seen enough of a clearing of the deck or enough of the reshuffling of the cards to get through this 50% reduction in oil prices that uh, that has occurred over the last, you know, 15 to 18 months. I think people were being too optimistic 3 weeks ago. That's why I had mentioned several times that I thought we were in a suckers rally for oil and you'll see that suckers rally uh, did did fail. The highest oil got priced in October was uh, right at $50 a barrel, maybe a hair more. But that was lower than the high that had been achieved in oil uh, coming out of the original suckers rally, which occurred right after the flash crash of August, uh, somewhere around maybe August 28th or 29th. We saw a big suckers rally in commodities. Oil spiked up to maybe $51 a barrel. It then dropped back down to that $44 a barrel range. And then, again, just in these last three weeks, we saw another sucker's rally. It got up to that $50 level, but not as high as it had gotten in August. And boom, it's back down in that $44 range. Likewise, the other commodities, uh, their pricing has pretty much fallen back down again. Gold, which many people were excited about because for the first time in a long time, it had gotten above $1,150 an ounce. Well, as I record this, uh, you know, it's fallen back below 11, it's about 11.62, 11.63 right now. In my opinion, uh, again, I think headed well below 11.50. The fears of inflation are just not there to support it. Whether the Federal Reserve does or doesn't raise interest rates, I don't think is going to be enough of a factor to keep gold above 11.50 an ounce, not as long as oil prices are less than $50 a barrel. We've also seen the U.S. dollar recovering. Even if the Fed does or doesn't raise interest rates, the strength of the U.S. dollar is a zero-sum gain because it's measured against a basket of other currencies. So even if the Federal Reserve keeps our rates where they are, if Europe or if China or if Australia or Sweden or the Japanese or any of the other modern economies, if they have further easing, if they have further accommodative monetary policy, Or if they have additional central bank intervention, printing of money, quantitative easing, call it whatever you want, if they do that, if they lower the quality and the value of their currency by default, by definition, because in the currency market, things are truly a zero-sum gain, if they weaken their currencies, the U.S. currency will strengthen. And that's exactly what's happened The U.S. dollar just last week has gapped up. It's firmly above its 200-day moving average. From a currency forex trading, that's that's the type of performance you want to see. The dollar had broken through the major resistance level that it had been uh, hovering below since early September. And I believe it should go back to its normal fluctuations of trading in a range where it won't hit another major resistance level for uh, about a one percent on the upside now in the terms of the dollar the reason I have such a concentrated long-term position in it right now during these times of uncertainty and times when I'm worried about the overall performance of the US stock market is that I'm not trying to make a killing or hit a home run of the US dollar I'm trying to preserve my wealth and that if things do fall apart I want to have somewhat of a cap on my losses right i'm trying to hedge my bets and at the same time if things improve i at least want to get enough of a return that covers the expenses of transaction costs and inflation and things like that so i i'm trying to more than keep up with inflation by having a concentrated position in the u.s dollar and at the same time trying to limit my losses or put some type of a floor, a a put underneath my losses. I can do that by investing in the US dollar because on the upside, I think maybe from where I bought it, it could go up five or six percent, but would not be likely to go down more than say, you know, three or four or five percent from where I bought it. On the other hand, if I invested in the S&P 500 either today or Three months ago or even eight months ago, what I was worried about is is that the upside in the S&P 500 would maybe only be 5 or 6%, but the downside could be in excess of a 20% loss. So that's been my rationale all year long. I'm playing a hedged game. I'm trying to preserve my capital and do better than inflation. I'm not trying to hit a home run. And more than anything, I don't want to strike out or lose the inning. But I think I just digressed. Now, where was I? Well, in any case, this is a good time to make a transition or a segue into what's happening with banking stocks, why I've been waiting and so concerned about that, and then what these three most important sectors of the U.S. stock market are. First of all, as far as financials, what I was waiting to see is how good of a news we would get out of the industry or the sector as a whole to see if we got that same enthusiasm and that same big gap up like occurred this week with technologies. Well, that didn't occur. For the most part, the banking sector uh, reported profits that were mediocre to status quo. You had some losers like Goldman Sachs and, to a lesser degree, um, J.P. Morgan. Which was a little surprising to me because I would have expected with all the volatility that's going on, they would have done better not only with their trading but also with their hedging and with their fee structure uh, that didn't occur. I'd say the overall best performer was Wells Fargo, and that's because of their income that they're deriving from just you know traditional banking, things like mortgage loans, car loans, and so that's while that's you know good for the overall economy, we are seeing obviously additional spending people's cars have worn out uh gas prices are low so people are back out there buying SUVs they're buying uh, recreational vehicles campers uh, winnebago's things like that they're purchasing homes at a better rate than what has uh, occurred you know in the in the last few years so that's showing that the overall consumer and economy is stable but we're not flourishing that's why we didn't see the bigger bankers doing well. and then even on a regional basis, the smaller bankers, and these are things that you can find in the exchange traded fund with their ticker symbol, KRE. That's Kilo Romeo Echo. That's a small regional uh, banking fund. If you look at their profits and you look at the way that index is performed, it's very mediocre, It's very status quo. Yes, they have performed nicely from the lows that they you know that occurred during the flash crash but they're still down considerably from where they were at back earlier this summer, like around June or July. They just now are breaking above their 100-day moving average, and I just don't see the uh, support or enthusiasm that looks like it's going to drag that higher. Now, I don't necessarily think that you're going to see a suckers rally fall apart like I'm predicting with the oil prices and commodities where I think that they could go back down to either test the previous lows or even get lower. I don't necessarily think you're going to see that with the regional bankers or with the, the bank financial or banking industry in general. I'm not saying that it's unhealthy, not as long as we don't have a global recession or commodity or any. Energy defaults, So I'm not predicting it's going to get that bad for the financial industry unless we see that black swan event. But what I'm saying is, is that this is an industry that was a leader. It should be performing a lot better than it is. And I was waiting till this last week until we got all these final bank reports in to see if we would get a really uh, strong upturn. And again, the best that we really saw for the smaller banks was breaking above their 100-day moving average, but nothing spectacular. And, And certainly, in my opinion, the way I read the charts, still a lot of overhead pressure and a lot of resistance if they try and go any higher. And then when you look at the large bankers, I mean, pull up a chart of J.P. Morgan. When you look at that level of player, they've got a long way to go. They're just trying to get above their 50-day moving average. They're nowhere near their 100- or 200-day moving average. So they got a long road to hoe. Morgan Stanley's even worse. JP Morgan Chase, again, I mean, a little bit better, just barely breaking above their 50 and 200 day moving average, which was really at a death cross, but they still have, uh, uh, they're still below their 100 day moving average. They got an extremely high hurdle to get over to get above all the overhead pressure that's ahead of them. Citigroup, I mean, their chart's almost identical. So the banking sector, although improving and although stable, is not showing the strength or the leadership that you would be expecting if we were going into another sustainable rally. That's why I was waiting to see the performance of these financial stocks before I got too optimistic about uh, any type of recovery or the direction of this economy. Right now, I just don't see it. I think we're going to see continued pullbacks, and I hold to the previous episodes when I talked about another shoe dropping and the market you know, falling back below this double top that we're in. And again, I don't know if it will go down and test the old low levels, if it'll break down below them and we'll go into a a full-fledged bear market. I don't know that, but it just seems like to me that the range of this market is around 1950 on the S&P 500. We'll get a few percent above that. We'll get a few percent below that. I think we're going to see that consolidation around that 1950 level. I can be wrong. I don't offer advice. I don't offer recommendations to you. I just tell you what I'm thinking based on my logic and my reasoning. I let you know what positions I'm taking and what I'm trading. So it's more than just an opinion but you have to take it for what it's worth. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't see the future. I just see lower oil prices, lower commodity prices, and lower prices on the general market and the S&P 500. Now, why is my position different from other things you're hearing? Why has the market done better these last three weeks? And, you know, this last week, was it topping out or were these technology stocks going to push us on to all new time highs? Well, we'll have to wait and see. But here's the weakness I saw in the technology stocks. We're really, at this point, only seeing leadership from Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And Amazon's strength is not in the retail sector. It's really in their cloud computing, in their internet services, or their web services. That same cloud-based computing is what's driving profits over at Microsoft. To the similar degree, you're seeing that same thing occur at uh, Google, as well as Google's doing really well with its advertisers. The investments that they've made in YouTube are really paying off. They're, they're being able to monetize that now. And so uh, while you're seeing some type cloud computing benefits to Google, it's really an advertising story. And then pretty much at Facebook, it's all an advertising story. Now these are good things, but from an overall economic standpoint and what's going to drive the general stock market higher, You have to ask yourself if the fact that the newer media or newer technology companies like Facebook and Google that are, they're really deriving their profits because they're taking market share and they're taking revenue from the old traditional media. They're taking advertising dollars away from TV, away from print media, away from the old dinosaurs of magazines and newspapers. So it's not a new input into the economy. It's just taking market share from somewhere else in the economy. And because the rates are so much lower, the overall profit margins are showing more of deflation than inflation. Now, of course, because it's concentrated in such a small number of companies, because you know Google and Facebook are doing so well they're raking in and pulling in large profits but it isn't as distributed as it had been when you had all the networks and all the cable channels and all the newspapers and all the magazine I mean all those sources of print media and traditional broadcast media they were all sharing a portion of that pie well that pie has gotten smaller but the profits of that smaller pie are in the hands of only two or three companies So it has had a very focused and good impact on Facebook, on Google, but it's not necessarily good for the general economy. There's a lot of displacement that has gone on in traditional media. There will be more displacement that comes. And think about it. In the old days, when you were running either a broadcast studio or publishing a newspaper, it not only affected the media companies, but there was a corollary spillover effect newspapers had to buy paper and ink and employ printers and you know that worked its way all the way up to the forests and lumber industries and things like that people they're that growing trees Likewise, on the broadcast side, you had producers and directors and copywriters, and you had copper wire, and you had electrical engineers and broadcast engineers and transmission towers, all these different things, these huge industries that were associated with the broadcast business. Well, you don't need that to support YouTube or to support Facebook. You don't need all the copper wire, you don't need all the individuals, and the individuals that you are used are many of them at lower pay scales or in some cases they're totally free. Go out and look at a lot of the content on YouTube that's generating ad and revenue dollars for Google and you'll see that a lot of that's just coming from regular people that are posting material out there. So they don't have to pay as much to entertainers or to media uh, content providers as ABC or CBS or HBO had to do. So this wealth that's being concentrated in these few leadership in high-tech companies is not necessarily being spilled over and shared with the general economy. So just because Microsoft is doing better, just because Facebook is making profits, doesn't mean that you're going to see the rest of the S&P or the rest of the stock market follow. The Russell 2000, that's the small cap companies in America, that chart is in a hook and bar pattern. Although it tried to make a double top, it never got anywhere near the original suckers rally that it had undergone back in mid-September. It's not only far from the top that it hit back in June of this year, but year to date, it's still down something like 3%. This was supposedly the favored index that wasn't going to be affected by the strong dollar or by effects of a global recession or a global slowdown. It was regarded just a few months ago as the safe place to be. Well, it turned out not to be a safe place to be because it's still down maybe 9 or 10% from the highs that it hit at the end of June. To give you some other examples of how weak the leadership is but how broad the overall malaise is, Look at the retail sector and the consumer staples and consumer discretionary sectors. Now, if you're paying attention to the mainstream media, they're telling you that consumer staples are are doing okay and the consumer discretionaries are doing fantastic. But I beg to differ when you really dig down into the numbers and you're not only seeing the laggards not performing well, but even the high-flying stocks that people had so much uh, hope and aspiration for are not doing well. On Friday, the Target Corporation, Target Target Stores, they closed down over 5%. That put Target back in the red for the whole year, and they had been doing extremely well. Whole Foods Market, you know what a darling of Wall Street that's been. That's down about 36% year to date. A good percentage of the retailers and the restaurants that are frequented by the middle class, they're not doing well. And you may be saying, well, hey, you know, Nike's uh, going gangbusters. And yes, that's true. But you know, there was uh, supposedly some spillover effect to that whole uh, athletic footwear and athletic clothing environment. And that's just not happening. Yes, Nike's performing well but sketcher reported horrible earnings on Friday they gapped down over 30 percent on Friday alone now companies like Under Armour are doing better but for the week even Under Armour was down nearly 10 percent I think they were down over 8 percent most of that came with poor performance on Thursday and Friday so again I want to stress the leadership that we're seeing is in a handful of companies I don't see a spillover effect that's creating a tide that's rising all boats. That's very concerning to me. And that takes me to the point that I want to make about what the three most important sectors of the stock market are. And I would argue that not only are these three sectors the most important, but all the other sectors simply provide a supporting role. So, for example, transportation stocks or utility stocks, consumer staples, consumer discretionaries, you know, all these things you hear about in the stock market. They're all important. They all go through trends. You can make money in any of those sectors when they're moving up. But when you're looking at a pure market indicator, when you're trying to narrow down and focus on what's most important and what's going to help you understand if you're moving into economic growth or if you're moving into economic decline or stagnation. Many of these indicators can give you hints. For example, something like the packaging industry or the transportation industry can act as an early warning to let you know whether the, the economy is slowing down or heating up simply because more things get you know, put into brown boxes and shipped around. So if you watch the transportation sector and the packaging sector, you can get that early warning from it. But in my opinion, it doesn't give you as much of a solid in-depth impact as these other three sectors that I want to talk about and I want to highlight to you. And those sectors, simply put, are the energy sector, the financial sector, and the technology sector. The energy sector, I think, speaks for itself. Without energy in a modern-day economy, nothing happens. If you can't put jet fuel in your plane, you're not flying anywhere. The global economy comes to a standstill. If you can't put fuel oil in tankers to ship products around the oceans, then the global economy comes to a standstill. If you can't generate electricity to run your computer or your network server or to turn the lights on in your business or to run your machinery, then the global economy comes to a standstill. So it almost goes without saying, but without energy, we don't have a global economy. And so energy is a key number one sector. Now, the second industry is almost identical to energy in terms of its impact, and that's the financial industry, and it's for the same reason. Just like your car doesn't go anywhere if you don't put gas in it, the modern economic system that we live under is fueled by capital investment and by money. And so without the banking system and without the, the corollary of the uh, all the companies that make up the financial system, the global economy comes to a standstill so the two major drivers of the economy are energy and financial sectors without those two nothing happens the third one is a result of innovation and that's the technology sector now in modern day times technology has come to mean computers computer technology computer sciences internet services, all the things wrapped up into that. And down the road, as things change and sectors get renamed, I may have to tweak or update what I'm saying. But for right now, the technology sector as defined by the S&P pretty much correlates to the information technology that's driving our economy. So all the economic improvements, whether they be in biotech, in pharmaceuticals, in recreation, or in any aspect of your life. Almost all the cost reductions and productivity improvements and benefits that you have are derived from the information sector that's wrapped up in in what we categorize today as the technology sector. So improvements in education, improvements in navigation, improvements in telecommunications, it all originates in the information revolution that we call the technologies. Without those technological innovations and and improvements, the global economy, again, would come to a standstill. We may not get any worse, but we wouldn't get any better. And so you have to keep your eye on technological innovation. I won't go into it in this episode, but if you haven't listened to it before, it's been a while since you have listened, you might want to go back, check out episode five, which is where I discuss the fifth wealth building principle, which is embrace technology and innovation. Going back, let's key in on the three most important sectors of the economy, energy sector, financial sector, and the technology sector. Well, how are they shaping up? Okay, we just reviewed a lot of that in the earlier part of this episode. The energy sector is hurting. As an industry, the profits are down about 50% year to date. While some people see some improvements in that sector, I think there's still a long bumpy path to go to get to full recovery. There's an imbalance. There's a global energy imbalance. The world is producing about 2% more petroleum oil than is needed. That may sound like a good thing if you're a consumer and if you're buying gasoline, but it's a negative thing if you're one of these companies or if you're one of these financial institutions that has put out trillions of dollars to produce this extra and unneeded oil. And hence, that's what I was talking about, about a black swan event, where if we start seeing a lot of defaults by energy and commodity companies, it will throw the financial institutions into a tailspin. And again, the reason that's important, well, the number two most important sector of the economy is the financial industry. You just heard me talk about how at best they're performing status quo and really just treading water. There's no strength. There's no leadership in that industry. The stocks are all well off their highs. They're not forecasting any growth. So we're seeing out of our three most important sectors of the economy, we're seeing two of them either significantly declining or at best, the financial industry just treading water. That takes us to technologies. What have I said about technologies? We are seeing leadership there. We are seeing strength. But it's focused in a very narrow segment within that sector. And as shallow as the leadership in that sector has been, it's getting weaker when you see how many former leaders are dropping out, right? There's Netflix and Apple and Tesla. Their stocks have all been underperforming. The leadership is really only there in the few that we've mentioned, Google, Amazon, and Facebook and that, in my opinion, is not enough to take this market into a full recovery and on to new highs. I don't think that it's impossible that we could end this year up around 2100. If you've listened to past episodes all along, I've said that we very likely could finish the year at 2130 or 2150, but that I didn't think that that was enough of an incentive to be in the market because that was only about a 5 or 6% return on the year. Well, here we are. We're in late October. There are only about eight weeks left of the year. I don't think it's impossible that we get back up above 2100, but I do think it's highly unlikely. I think this market on the S&P 500 is petering out here at that 2075 level. There's a lot of overhead resistance right at you know 2070 to 2080. I expect the market to go down back closer to that 2000 level. I would not be at all surprised to see it get all the way back down in 1950. As I've stated before, I think 1950 is the likely sweet spot for the S&P 500 for at least the next few months until we determine which direction this market's really going to move. Now, that's the bad news, and I really don't want to end this podcast on a negative note because, as I've stated and I've tried to reiterate this because I know so many people get so negative, I don't think there's an economic collapse I don't think the whole world's coming apart. I think that we're just going through a consolidation period here, a needed correction. The S&P right now is currently trading at about 16.7 times earnings. I think based on future growth estimates and the overall trajectory of the world economy that that's too high. So we do need this correction but it will level out and I don't think it's gonna be that much longer into the future where we are gonna see some excellent buying opportunities so this is the time to keep your powder dry to be patient you should be building your watch list you should be looking for the opportunities that will definitely come about and you should be positioning yourself so that you can take advantage of them now again I'm not offering you advice or recommendations I'm simply stating my opinion Take it for what it's worth. In any case, I would tell you, though, invest with caution. And so until our next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.